0: You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. I'm going to ask you to do something new right now. Open your Bible. Now, that's not new. That happens all the time around here. And if, by the way, that doesn't ever, if it's one Sunday, somebody doesn't say that, it's time to find another church. But uh, here we say open the Bible. Here's what's new. Open your Bible to the Gospel of Luke. Now, that's going to get old because this will be the first time for the next 68 times I tell you to open your Bible. We are starting our journey through the Gospel of Luke, and I have reduced the Gospel of Luke to 68 sermons. Now, you say, now, are we gonna survive that? I would just want to remind you that in 2012, I asked you to open to the Gospel of Matthew for the first time, and 74 Sundays later, the church had doubled in size, okay? So if God does this time what he did that time, You think you had a hard time finding a parking spot this morning. uh, We're gonna have to do something about uh, building a bigger building. Oh, we've already thought about that, haven't we? So anyway, that's what is involved today. Now, I told you we're gonna cover all 24 chapters all 50 pages in your Bible. If you've kind of found, look at where it starts and ends. Does it cover about 50 pages in your Bible? And that's about what it is in my Bible. We're going to look at all 1,151 verses, all 19,400-ish words in the Gospel of Luke. And it is a treasure that we have. By the way, for those of you that didn't bring a paper copy of the Gospel of Luke, we've anticipated your arrival and we've got one of these for you. It's called the ESV journaling uh, scripture journal. And you can pick one of these up um, out at the uh, resource center there. Somebody has gone to the trouble to put the words of God on this side of the page. So you can put the words of you on this side of the page. And in approximately two years, this will all be filled with your comments on you're going to make your own commentary. So you can pick one of those up if you need one of those. Others of you take notes in other ways. And that's fine as well. Uh, we are going to behold some things that God wants us to see through this gospel of Luke. And that's the title of our series as we begin here through uh, December and January, the word behold. And we take that word from this particular scripture, which should not be new to you at all. The angels said to those shepherds as they watched over their flocks by night, this statement, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is who? Christ the Lord. So one of the reasons we're doing this is if you've been around here for a while, over about the last year and a half, the pastor has felt like we needed to deal with some topics to find out what we believe on certain issues. And so we've kind of been surfing through scripture, chasing themes through the Bible. We did a series on prayer. We did a series on uh, marriage. We did a series on parenting. We did a series on the Holy Spirit. We did a series on the church. Well, now the topic is this. Are you ready for the new topic? It's Jesus. That's going to be the topic for about the next two years. Christ exalted over all. We are going to behold him in a way maybe that we've never beheld him. Now, in order to, for you to understand what we're talking about, when we see this word behold. I need you to play along this little group participation time in church. Okay. I want you uh, to look at the person next to you. Do that. Did you get a good look at him. All right. Look back at me. All right. Now, here's the second step in the process. Now. I want you to behold the person next to you. It's getting awkward in here real fast. All right? No, I'm serious. I want you to behold him. Look at him. I want you to look into their eyes. I want you to notice the color of their eyes. I want you to notice the black dot in the center of the color I want you to notice your reflection in the center of the black dot. All right, everybody look back at me. All the introverts are never coming back to Harvest Bible Chapel. It's like, that was weird, and you just invaded my private space and all that. I get that. But listen, this is what we are commanded to do. This verse is not a Christmas carol. It is a command fear not, behold. There are some things that God wants us to behold about Jesus. And it doesn't mean just take a glance at him. It doesn't mean give him passive approval. It means to stare at him, to gaze at him, to be awestruck by his beauty, to consider the realities of who is there. Now, that wasn't awkward for some of you because some of you are married to the person that you you were beholding and you guys do that all the time some of you haven't done that in a while you might want to do that in private sometime that might do some good things for your marriage but if if you are intimate with the person that you are with that was not awkward some of you it's awkward for you to behold Jesus because you're just really not all that intimate with him if I do my job right you do your job right over the course of the next 68 weeks you're going to be more intimate with Jesus than you were today. Behold. And apparently, here's a little um, benefit from that. Apparently, beholding is the cure for fear. Fear not. If you're a fearful person, you're afraid, you got some anxieties, you're wondering what's going on in the economy, what's going on in politics. Hey, you know what the cure for all of that is? Get your eyes off all that stuff and look at Jesus behold. And if you will do that, it will become to you good news that will produce great joy. For some of you, the reality is it's old news and you're really not all that happy about it this morning. And the cure for you is to behold afresh and anew the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And God hasn't left us to speculation. He's given us his written word to help us do the very thing he's commanded us to do. So we better read part of it here before we get any further. We're going to read the first four verses of this book. And here's what it says. Luke 1, 1. "...inasmuch as I have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us." Verse 3, "...it seemed good to me." It, was, it seemed so good. What a great idea. "...it seemed so good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past to write, everybody underline the word write in verse three, W-R-I-T-E, underline the word write. It seems so good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So we are going to behold what Luke thought was so good to write. Title of the message today is this, behold the written word of God. Do you understand what we just read was not just the words of Luke. It was and is the Word of God. And so often we treat it so trivial and we put it up against our opinion and our speculation and somehow think we can overrule the Word of God. Listen, before we go any further, before we study Luke, we need to understand what it is. It is the written Word of God. Unfortunately, God used Luke to write it in an orderly manner. Did you notice that he said he write in an orderly manner? Now, if you want to read something that's not orderly, you can read the Gospel of John, because John is just all over the place with theming. But Luke is very orderly. He orders, how many of you appreciate orderly people? How many of you need orderly people in your life because you're such a train wreck? And it's like, I just need people beside me to keep me on the rails, right? Well, Luke is your friend, okay? He writes in an orderly fashion. He orders what he says chronologically. So we obviously start out with the birth of Christ, actually actually the conception of Christ, the immaculate conception of Christ that anyway, we, the birth of Christ, and then we get a little glimpse of him when he was 12 years old, and then we get uh, a little, uh, then we get a lot of detail about the last three years of his life, and a huge amount of details of the last week of his life, so he orders it chronologically. He also orders it geographically. Luke serves as a tour guide through the land of Israel. Now, I went to Israel last year. It was incredible. We had a tour guide, and I got this understanding of things that I never understood before actually being physically on the ground. By the way, if you've never gone to Israel and you'd like to come with us, we're going in February. We've still got space if you want to come to us, and it'll help you understand the gospel of Luke. So this is the thing. Luke starts us in Jerusalem. And then he takes us north to Galilee, where the majority of Jesus' ministry takes place, until we get to chapter 9. In chapter 9, Jesus starts moving back toward Jerusalem. And for about 10 chapters, we just get the commentary of how Jesus went on this journey to Jerusalem. And then the last couple of chapters are Jesus in Jerusalem. So he orders it geographically. Most importantly, Luke orders it theologically. And even though we're just kinda walking verse by verse, we're gonna get introduced to some theological topics here. Luke gives more attention in his gospel To the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the theology of the Spirit of God, working through the Son of God, obeying Father God, we're going to understand some things about the Holy Spirit. He also helps us theologically order what we believe about prayer, again, more than any other writer. Um, Luke introduces us to the importance and the theology of prayer. Luke introduces us to the theology of money, how it can play a vital role in ministry and how it can be a danger preventing ministry. Luke introduces us to uh, the theology of biblical womanhood. Think about this. Luke introduces us to some incredibly strong women that we don't find in other Gospels. And so we, we get this huge glimpse of, of Mother Mary and, and Elizabeth. And, and he introduces us to this wonderful lady named Anna, a prophetess. And all through Scripture in, in his account we see the nobility and the strength of women. And so Luke elevates this high calling of biblical womanhood. And then we we see the, the order account of above all God's eternal plan for salvation. From the beginning of time to the end of time, Luke is going to let us know it's all one big story. So we need to answer this question, who is Luke? Now we don't know a lot about Luke, but we know a few things about Luke because he was a companion of the apostle Paul, the greatest missionary, the greatest, greatest preacher of all time. In the first century, and it says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul's writing to the Colossians and he says, "Um, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Okay, so now we know what his occupation is. Luke was what? Luke was a doctor, so let's call him Dr. Luke. Now, do you know anything about doctors? Doctors are very orderly and doctors are highly educated. Doctors have to diagnose problems, right? My son, Zach, he's 21 years old. He's a, Cedar, he's a student at Cedarville University. And uh, he decided with a bunch of buddies to load in a car and to go to Colorado for uh, fall break. And every time I've told people that, they always say, oh, did he go snow, snowboarding? And I said, well, kind of, it's just that a bunch of poor college kids, they couldn't afford the board. So they just decided to climb the mountain and slide (laughs) as highly educated 21-year-old college students would do. And of course, Zach's leg got caught somehow and they were going like 40 miles an hour down a hill and, and it got caught and it twisted it all up. So he calls me on the way back from Colorado, he's like, Dad, I think I like tore up my knee. I may have torn my meniscus and I might need to see a doctor. And so we had him divert and come here and so we spent um, most of Monday in the waiting room at South Bend Orthopedics, waiting for the doctor to come and check Zach's leg. And so, as soon as we got in there, he starts the examining process and he starts asking him, You know, how old are you? How did it happen? Where were you? Which way did it bend? Does this hurt? Yeah. And so he's diagnosing the problem as a good physician would do. And then at, and then he says we need to take an x-ray to examine it with detail what's going on inside of there. And then after the diagnosis, the doctor gives what? The prescription. And fortunately, he thinks it's going to be okay. But that's an example of the way that Dr. Luke does his diagnosis of the person and the work of Jesus. We're going to find out in a minute. He went on, an, on this investigative journey to diagnose the life of Jesus. And he starts asking tons of questions. Tell me what happened. Did it, did it hurt, you know, when he said that? And, and so he gives us the diagnosis. And then based on what he discovers what happened, do you know what Luke does? He inserts what we ought to do about that. Here's the prescription based on what happened. Here's what you should do. And so he's very orderly in helping us understand theologically how to navigate through there. Another thing that we know about Luke that's interesting is he is not Jewish. He's the only non-Jewish writer that God used to record the written Word of God. He's a Gentile like most of us in here. Now that ought to make you like... Hey, I'm, I'm on that team. I, I, he's an outsider. Luke wasn't probably all that familiar growing. He probably didn't grow up in a Jewish home, so he, he probably didn't get all the Old Testament Bible stories until later on in life. Who do you think he probably learned those things from? Paul, because he hung out with Paul. Now, don't you think it was a wise move of Paul to have a doctor, a team doctor on the team? Because what was Paul always doing? man, he'd just go right into a dangerous territory, get beat up, you know, and he'd, he'd leave there bruised and bloody. And who had to take care of him? Luke, he'd patch him back up. All right, send him back in the game, you know? And so that's what Luke would do. But in the process of the healing, he was probably getting, you know, a download of, like, all this Old Testament connection and and the law and the prophets and the exile. And here's the Psalms and here's the role of David. And here's all these incredible things that he's learning from this former um, Jewish Pharisee, the Apostle Paul, and he's getting he's getting trained in all of that. So we had to learn that later in life. So listen, if you are new to the Bible, Luke is your friend. He writes to you as an outsider, a religious outsider. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of reasons if you're an outsider, you feel like you don't really fit in church, I don't really... Get this Jesus thing, then Luke is written to you. He's writing to those of us that maybe feel like we're in the margins or have been marginalized. Again, we've talked about how he writes to women. If you've ever felt marginalized as a woman, you're going to love Dr. Luke. He writes to all kinds of races, those majority races, minority races. As a Gentile, he felt like a minority when he was with the Jewish people. And uh, he, he writes to all kinds of economic classes, both rich and poor, even in the Christmas story Luke makes sure that he records there were these shepherds, minimum wage job, smelly just out in the field, just kind of outcast only job they could get and then the very next thing he tells us about these kings that arrive at the Christmas story and so the gospel is for everyone there's access by faith to God through Jesus, that's what Luke wants us to know. Luke is your friend if you are sick or mentally unstable. How many of you are in that category this morning? Okay. Because he includes 13 different narratives of healing. And some of these people were demonized and had all kinds of spiritual oppression. And so Luke wants you to know, if you feel like an outsider... He can relate to you. He's writing to you because he felt like an outsider as well. And so we behold the written word of God. Three things we want to behold about the written word of God. First of all, the written word of God is delivered by eyewitnesses. You see it here in verse 2. He mentions from the beginning there were these eyewitnesses and ministers of the word that has been delivered to us through them. And so we need to understand see the word delivered there that's an that's an incredibly important reality that Luke wants us to see Luke wants us to understand truth about God is not discovered you don't get to make up your truth about God truth about God is delivered by God as a gracious, loving act. Here's the reality about God. He wants to be known. He wants to be loved. He wants to be served. He wants to be worshipped. And so God, through a gracious, loving act, chooses to voluntarily disclose his will and his ways and to deliver to us truth about him that otherwise could not be known. And the scripture, Luke tells us that I'm just the delivery system here. I don't make it up. I just deliver. I'm just the delivery boy, okay? And so he's not manufacturing the message. He's just the the UPS guy delivering the package to us. And what we have here is what has been disclosed by God. What we believe we just read, as I said earlier, is not just the words of Luke. We believe what we just read are the words of God. We believe that Scripture... Is inspired by God. We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Now it's a bunch of theological words. What that means is this. We believe the very words are inspired, not just the ideas about who Jesus was, but the words were inspired. When I was young, I was coming to understand these things. I was like, how did like God get his words on the paper Luke wrote? I mean, was it like he just kind of put Luke in a trance, he knocked him out, and just kind of levitated his hand over the pen, and just kind of like a Ouija board moved the pen around so that even the penmanship was inspired by God. Is that what happened? No, we don't believe that. What we believe is this. God used the vocabulary, the education, the experiences, the perspectives of Dr. Luke so, that when Dr. Luke wrote, it resulted in the very words of God. Inspired, inerrant, and sufficient for everything we need to have a relationship with this transcendent God that otherwise could not be known. And yet because of his love, he wants to be known, he inspired Luke and we have not just something inspired, but it's preserved. The fact that 2,000 years later, it's like printed on a page or it's been digitized into your phone. What a gift that God has given and we treat it so lightly. What would it do to our schedule if we really believed the written word of God was inspired? by a God that wanted to be known and worshiped and loved by you. It's not just delivered to us, but it's delivered to us by eyewitnesses, okay? So Luke wants us to know that here's, here's the deal. Je- Luke never laid eyes on Jesus. He didn't ever hear audibly Jesus. So what we have in his gospel is actually the result of good investigative journalism he went to the eyewitnesses. Somehow he probably had access to Mary. He probably had access to Anna and Simeon that we're going to meet in a couple of weeks here. And of course the disciples and some of these sinners that keep showing up and these people that were demonized. He went and talked to them and he asked them questions as a good doctor and he wrote down what they told him happened in the presence of Jesus. He interviewed the eyewitnesses. How many of you have ever uh, served on a jury? You ever, been, you ever get jury duty? I keep getting these letters asking me to be on jury duty, but then it says you're supposed to like call on like Sunday night to find out if the trial's been canceled. And my trial always gets canceled. I'm so disappointed. Does, am I the only one? Or does your trial get canceled too? I'm just thinking they found out, oh, they sent it to the pastor at Harvest. He's going to really mess things up and if he's a jury member. So, but here's, here's what I'm told happens is in a trial... There's always two sides to the story, right? I mean, you always, the defense calls some eyewitnesses and the prosecutor calls some eyewitnesses and their stories are always so very different. And as a juror, what you have to do is to decide what you believe is true, who's telling the truth. And Luke, is just giving you the eyewitness testimony and putting you in a position where you have to decide what you believe is true. Will you believe the eyewitnesses? Or you've got another option. Here's the other side of the story. Some of you had a freshman philosophy professor. Some of you went and saw a movie. Some of you heard a song on the radio or saw a tweet from an angry person and they said something mean about Jesus. And that was a testimony that was delivered to you. So here's the thing, you get to decide as the juror, am I gonna believe this eyewitness or the eyewitness that is recorded for me in my Bible? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking if I ever got called on a trial, I would probably listen to the witness that was actually closest to the event that occurred. And Luke gives us the testimony of those eyewitnesses. The, the crowd over here that's always so disparaging of the Bible, the story it goes like this. It's like, oh, of course you can't trust the Bible. It's written by fallible men. And if you know anything about it, what happens is there's all these legends and myths about Jesus and they all kind of circulated orally and they got embellished for about 300 years. And then finally the powerful people at church, they got together and they, they kind of voted and they just kind of voted these four books would get in the Bible and they left everything else on the cutting floor. And of course this is what they have and they only did it because it kind of emboldened them and and set them up in their power structure to succeed. That's the testimony of this crowd. Um, the only problem with that is it's not true. Nobody that understands what we have here believes that. How many of you know the name uh, C.S. Lewis? You ever heard of that that name? Remember Chronicles of Narnia? And um, he was he was actually in his day job. What he was he was a literary critic and a historian he said as much this is what he said he said all I am in private life is a literary critic and a historian that's my job and I am prepared to say on that basis if anyone thinks the gospels are either legend or novels then that person is simply showing his incompetence as a literary critic He goes on to say, I've read a great many novels and I know a fair amount about the legends that grew up among early people. And I know perfectly well that the Gospels are not that kind of stuff. They are not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative standpoint of view, they are clumsy, they don't work up to things properly if they're fiction. But if they're fact, then they ought to like look like technical documents with names and dates and places. The reality is this. Luke recorded their eyewitness accounts in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. If what he wrote wasn't true, the eyewitnesses could have refuted what he said. The reason that Luke made it in our canon, in our Bible, is because It was verifiable information by the eyewitnesses. You can trust your Bible. You shouldn't believe your Bible because it makes you feel good. You should believe your Bible because it's true. The only narrative worth believing is the one that's true. And if it's not true, you're wasting your time reading it but we read it because we believe it was delivered by God through these eyewitnesses and Luke that decided to write it down. Now, listen, there's one other thing that we need to know about this. The written word of God is not only delivered to us, the written word of God is delivered by us. It is not enough to be grateful that we have a nice leather Bible to read on Sunday morning. God could have got his word to us any way he wanted us. He could have texted us directly. He, I mean, he could have written it to the sky. He could have found it under a rock or something. God chose the delivery system of his written word to be human through the the human, the flawed human, Luke. He gave us the perfect, inerrant word of God. Now, God's not gonna use you to write more scripture, but he will use you to deliver more scripture to people who need to hear it. Did anybody see the news account this week of the the missionary that was killed on the remote island off the coast of India? His name was John Chow, and he's 27 years old. And he got a burden for this tribal people that had no access to the outside world. And he said, those are an unreached people group and they need to hear about Jesus. And so he paid a, a fisherman to take him by boat to the island. He got off on the beach there. And he, uh, he recorded in his journal, he said uh, these savages started coming out of the, the, the bush And they had arrows and bows and he said he said I hollered at him and I said my name is John and I love you and Jesus loves you and they loaded their bows and their arrows and they shot at him and so he ran as fast as he could and got back on the boat but then he came back the second time and this time he didn't make it out alive there's been a lot of debate among missiologists and sociologists as to whether or not that was a good thing and maybe there was a better methodology to use I mean when Jesus sent people out he always sent them about two by two that might have helped and we could kind of critique his methodology but the one thing you cannot deny is that dude believed everybody had to have access to the written word of God. And so before you get all arrogant and start critiquing his methodology, can I ask you a question? Who did you deliver the word of God to this week? God is probably not gonna call you to go to some savage people on some remote island. God probably is going to call you to go to the savages that you work with and the savages that you live with and the savages you go to school with. And so remember, the Word of God is not just delivered to us, the Word of God is delivered by us. We are God's delivery system for the written Word of God. Here's the second thing. Behold, behold the written Word of God details things Jesus accomplished. Look here in uh, verse one. It says, um, Inasmuch as I have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things. I love that word. Things. Just, these are things. Things that have been accomplished. Now, do you see the word accomplished there? Your translation may say fulfilled. That's a good word. Here's what Luke wants us to know from the very first verse. The things he's going to write about didn't just happen the things he's going to write about happened on purpose. They happened according to God's plan. The things he's going to write about fulfilled promises God made in the Old Testament. The, from the beginning of time, Adam and Eve and the law and Moses and the prophets and all these things, the exile and the rebuilding of the temple and the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifice, all those things happened to point to the things Jesus accomplished while he was here in flesh and blood. And so understand this, the Bible is about Jesus. You say, well, that's kind of obvious. No, listen, you know what so many people do? They make the mistake of approaching the Bible and reading the Bible as if the Bible is about me. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is about Jesus and so you don't come to the Bible with questions like how can I be a good person? I need to read my Bible today to find out how I can be a good person. I don't read my Bible today to say how can I fix my problems? I don't come to the Bible and say I need to find something so that I can be successful. I need to find out how to accomplish all of my goals. Listen, the Bible is not about you accomplishing your goals. The Bible is about Jesus accomplishing God's goals and fulfilling God's promises for salvation. And so Luke writes to help us answer the two most important questions in all of human history. Here they are. Who is Jesus? Who does Jesus say that he is? In response, who Do I say Jesus is? That's the most important question. Who do you say Jesus is? As a matter of fact, Jesus actually asked his disciples that in Luke. We're going to study that. That is the critical question in Luke: Who do you say Jesus is? And so this is what this is what Luke does. He goes and asks all the eyewitnesses that question: Who do you say Jesus is? What what did you see Jesus do? What did you hear Jesus say? Did you ever hear or see Jesus do anything that would contradict who Jesus said he was? Those are the questions Luke is trying to answer. And then the second question, not just who do you say Jesus is, here's the second question. Who does Jesus say you are? Because it really doesn't matter what anybody else says you are or who you are. It only matters what Jesus says. And here's what Jesus says, by the way, a little preview of coming attractions. You are loved, you are valued, you are treasured, and you are a dirty, rotten sinner in need of a savior. And if you will come to believe who Jesus said he was, it will radically change who you think you are. That's all Luke is trying to answer in his gospel. And... We're going to need about 68 sermons to answer those questions, so we're going to get after it here. By the way, in case you're wondering whether that's actually true, if we've read from the first page of Luke. If we were to take time to like flip over to the back page, you don't have to flip. take the time because I throw it up on the Scripture here. There's this little story about after Jesus is resurrected, there are these two disciples walking on the Emmaus Road, and Jesus comes up and talks to them. They don't recognize who he is. And so this is what he does. He starts the conversation and like, hey, what are the things that have been going on? And they say, well, we don't, don't you know what things are going on? And they couldn't identify who Jesus was. And they were scratching their head and like, I don't know why I had to die. And this is what Jesus said to them. You foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. I don't know about you, but on the majority of days, that's me. I'm just slow to believe the things that I know to be true. And again, Luke is helping those of us that are slow of heart to believe, recording what Jesus says. You're slow of heart to believe all of the pro- that the prophets have spoken, Old Testament. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer? You see, that's what the Old Testament was all about. Suffer these things and enter into his glory And beginning with Moses, those are the first five books of your Bible. Jesus started on page one of Bible and took these guys through all the prophets. Jesus interpreted for them all the scripture, the things concerning himself that were written in the Old Testament. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Every story's about Jesus. Every page is about Jesus. Every page of the Bible is the unfolding story of Jesus. So when we get to the Gospel of Mark, don't approach it thinking somehow, it's about you. Now, if you believe what Jesus said about himself, you will be radically altered what He says about you. And so we need to understand that going in. If you believe the Bible is all about you, you'll make one of two mistakes. Number one, You'll be crushed by all the Bible demands of you if you think it's all about you. Or the other mistake is you'll get so arrogant because you're a little better than somebody else at actually obeying the Bible that you'll become self righteous. Don't make that mistake. It's not about you. If you believe it's about Jesus, it will become to you good news of great joy. That's what we want. Here's the last thing Behold, the written word of God deepens my certainty. Anybody got doubts? Anybody scratch your head and say, like, I don't know if all this is true. You're going to love Dr. Luke. Luke is the gospel that was written to skeptics. Look again here who it's written to. At the end of verse 3, he, he acknowledges this guy. He calls him Most Excellent Theophilus. And he says he wrote these things that Most Excellent Theophilus... That you might have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. So, who's this guy named Theophilus? Well, we don't know anything about him other than the meaning of his name. Okay, so the meaning of his name, number one, it's Greek. So, he's not Jewish either. So, he's writing to an outsider. And he says um, that his name actually means, in the Greek, it means lover of God. That's great. So he loved God, but apparently he hadn't learned much about God. So he, he wanted to be not only a lover, he wanted to be a learner of God. And he had these curious questions. And he, like, is it really true that God had a plan to save the whole world? Is it really true that the Old Testament somehow is fulfilled in Jesus? Is it really true that outsiders like me can be saved? Is it, did Jesus' death have any meaning and purpose? Or was he just a troublemaker that they eliminated? Did he die for a reason Did he die for me? These are questions that that Theo probably had. And so he's thinking, do I have access to this Jewish Messiah? And so Luke is writing to ensure him, yes, all that you have been taught is true. You can be certain that what you've been taught is true. Is true. That's what he's addressing here. Now, listen, if you're a skeptic, um, this is a great time for you to plug into Bible, plug into church, because we're going to go through this gospel. But listen, um, I could give you a list of reasons why you can trust the Bible. We can list all kinds of apologetic arguments for why you can, you ought to believe the Bible. Ultimately, you can read piles of those books and it will not change your mind about the Bible until or unless God actually opens your eyes and warms your heart to the written word of God. Again, that story that we read earlier about the two disciples that Jesus was talking to, after they recognized who Jesus was, this is what those guys said. They said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? If you are going to believe this stuff that's unbelievable, God is going to have to open your eyes to the scriptures and if he does if you see if you behold what is here you know what's going to happen it's going to cause heartburn your heart is going to become a flame with passion about Jesus it's not just about information it is about transformation and once he opens your heart, and opens your eyes, the things that were once unbelievable will become undeniable to you. That's my prayer that will happen over the course of the journey that we're gonna take. So let it start today. Just pray, God, would you open my eyes to see wondrous things in your law? It's a prayer from Psalm 119. Start your day with that. And let's behold, not just glance at, but behold who Jesus is in this series. We're going to receive the offering here at the end of the service and I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward now, but there's one more thing as these guys are coming, I want to let you know about Theophilus. I was reading in uh, the Lexham Bible Dictionary and it, it made an interesting note. It said that likely Theophilus was a rich man. He uses the title, most excellent Theophilus, which would indicate some nobility. And so, This rich man is asking Luke to give him an orderly account of the things about Jesus. And the the Lexham Bible Dictionary says it's likely that Theophilus actually provided the funding so that Luke could go on his investigative journey and actually write this book. Now think about that. If Theophilus had not given generously to Luke. Luke couldn't have done his investigation and couldn't have written his book. And today, we wouldn't be reading it. But because Theo was generous, what happened? The written Word of God was delivered and spread across the world. I don't know what you think we do with your money around here. Every time we take an offering, It's just an opportunity to spread the written word of God to people that haven't heard it and to drive it deep into our hearts so that our hearts burn and our eyes open and we behold Jesus. That's all we're doing around here. So if you haven't become like Theophilus, you say, I'm not a rich man. You're rich compared to 99% of the people that have ever lived in the world because you live in America. So everybody's got something to give. We told you last week about um, the things that we're trying to do around here. It's coming to the end of the year. You got an envelope in your bulletin. And I've asked you, if you call Harvest Your Church home, would you give an end of year gift? The goal is for everybody that calls Harvest their Church home to give an end of year gift, get caught up on the budget. You see all of the sloppiness around here. We'd like to turn that into beautiful things. And we can only do that if we pay for them. So that's what we're trying to do around here. So it's an opportunity to give and be generous. Let's uh, let's respond in faith, and Mike is going to lead us here.